now on Book TV's Afterwards. Financial Times columnist and CNN global economic analyst Rana Faruhar argues that large tech companies are failing to keep consumer data and privacy secure. She's interviewed by CNBC's John Fort. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. Rana, great to sit down with you. Uh, and your book, Don't Be Evil, is contains plenty on a really timely subject, given the political times that we're in, given the, the heights that the stocks of Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and others have reached recently. But you normally have a, a pretty broad scope yeah. to your coverage. Why this book? Why now? It's a really good question. Um, thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, I started this book, gosh, I guess it was in 2017. Uh, and I had just taken a, a job as columnist for the Financial Times. My mandate was to sort of figure out what are the world's biggest business and economic stories and then cover them in, in opinion form, which is a rather large mandate. <laughs> and uh, in order to sort of narrow the funnel, I started looking through corporate wealth figures. And I saw some amazing numbers in terms of how wealth had transitioned from the financial sector to the technology sector mm. since the great financial crisis. And one of the numbers that really stuck out was a McKinsey Global Institute figure uh, looking at how 80% of corporate wealth was being held in just 10% of firms. And those were the firms that were richest in personal data, in intellectual property. So basically, if you were trafficking in these things... Um, you were holding the majority of the world's corporate wealth. And the biggest of those firms were, of course, the ones that I profile in the book, the Fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, um, Netflix a little bit, and Google most of all. They, they make money, all of them, pretty differently. Uh, there's some uh, overlap, Facebook and Google, yeah. big in digital advertising. But you look at Apple, they've mostly shunned advertising and looked to sell their devices, their technology, Uber, you mentioned, isn't an ad-driven company. It's not a profitable company either, but making yeah. money on a, on a whole different basis. Besides the fact that we think of them as all being tech, do they all have one thing in common? It's a great question, and it's an interesting point that you make, too, because right now they're all trying to very much separate each other um, as regulators sort of look more tightly at this space. I think the thing that they do all have in common is the network effect. And the network effect is something I talk about a lot in my book. It's the idea that as you get big, you get bigger. Um, the business model of these companies and of many unicorns in Silicon Valley, those giant private billion-dollar firms, is to ring fence as much territory as possible as quickly as possible. So, mm, you know, move. Everybody wants a moat. Everybody wants a moat. Move fast and break things. So you get in. And you do this in, in many cases by sacrificing uh, margin. So a company like Amazon, but also like Uber, for example. You go and you undercut the world's taxi services. You take over the entire industry, and you worry about profits later. This is something that businesses simply haven't been able to do at scale in this way until now. Mm. And that in and of itself has a lot of ramifications. I mean, it cuts competitors out in ways that m may in fact be anti-competitive and, and point to monopoly power. 
a book's, book's called Don't Be Evil, which harks back to Google's, now I guess in a corporate sense it's called Alphabet, but Google's <laughs> yes. uh, original, very optimistic and yet simplistic uh, statement about itself, what it was going to adhere to. But the implication is that if not evil, they, they've certainly gotten kind of bad, right? Right. Um, so what's bad about being big and powerful and successful? Oh, wow. Well, where to start? Um, <laughs> I wrote 350 pages on it. Um, you know, don't be evil was a mantra, of course, that the Google guys came up with in the mid-1990s, which is when the Internet really was a garage industry. The consumer Internet was just being born. You had all these sort of individual, uh, small-time entrepreneurs coming up with these companies. And the reason I decided to focus on Google and on this idea of not being evil is that Google was there really in the beginning. So mm. when you write a book, particularly a complicated book that looks at economic and political and social issues, you want to try and find a continuous narrative arc. And at the time that I started looking at this, Facebook was really the, the company that was in the news um, for election manipulation, although you know there's been plenty of that on Google. But election manipulation, uh, monopoly power, you know, sort of bad behavior in general. But if you go back and you look at Google and its foundings, I read a paper that uh, Larry Page and, and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, wrote mm -hmm. in 1998. And you can find this paper on the Internet. It looks at what is a search engine? How would you run a search engine? How would you pay for this search engine? And they, at the very end, in an appendix section, they have a paragraph on advertising and its discontents. And they talk about how targeted advertising which is the business model of essentially watching what you're doing online, following you around, seeing what you're clicking on, what are you searching, mm -hmm. building a kind of a digital voodoo doll of you, and then showing that to advertisers and auctioning your eyeballs off to the highest bidder, that that business model would eventually bring users of search and advertisers into conflict. Their interests would not be the same, be they companies or, for example, large state entities like <laughs> Russia or Iran or uh, right-wing nationalists or, you know, whoever might want to reach you and try and influence you. So this was amazing to me. It's like a grim prophecy, huh? It's a grim, you know, and it's, it, this is one of the things that really bugs me when I see tech CEOs get up in, on the hill and say, we're so sorry, we could never have imagined all these terrible things. Well... Go back to that paper in 1998. It was kind of all there in the mm. small print. And the unspoken foil in the statement, don't be evil, was Microsoft, right? Because at, <laughs> right. at the time, uh, in, in the 90s, especially the mid to late 90s, they were seen as this ascendant evil empire that had stepped on Apple, you know, with Windows 3.1 and uh, stormed into, was storming into the internet and trying to, to own everything. Yeah. It's odd now that um, Bill Gates is now this sainted figure yeah. in technology, giving all this money away, and why doesn't every billionaire do what he does? And Satya Nadella, the current CEO of Microsoft, is seen as this kindly, you know, uh, gentler and yet effective CEO, yeah. um, they don't they don't come under too much fire or scrutiny well, uh, with yes. the rest of this group, do they? No, it's true. My, I mean, I didn't really focus on Microsoft, and um, you know, I, I think if Microsoft had their way, I'm sure that they'd be happy to have a very successful search engine. <laughs> Bing is not that search engine, you know. Right. But I mean, that actually goes to the point, um, and everything you're saying kind of hones in on 
what constitutes monopoly power, what constitutes anti-competitive behavior. The Microsoft antitrust case, which actually sort of allowed a lot of people would say the space for Google to, to be born and to grow, um, that happened you know, over 20 years ago at this point. That mm -hmm. was the last time that regulators and the public really looked at Silicon Valley, took a hard look at the tech sector and said, okay, we have com competition problems here. Now, um, Microsoft spent so much time, I think, grappling with those issues, um, being drawn into legal battles, that Google was able to get this leg up. Google was trafficking not in software, but in data, right, in surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff, uh, who wrote a wonderful book on that topic, has dubbed it. Um, that's a whole new world. And mm -hmm. if you go to some of the books that were written about data economics by people like Hal Varian, who is the, uh, the chief economist at Google, they talk a lot about the power of networks, how in this new world of the network effect of surveillance capitalism, that these companies would become natural monopolies. I mean, that's the whole thing. These guys didn't want to get into the business unless they thought they could create monopolies. So that, in a way, uh, sort of comes into conflict with the don't be evil slogan pretty early on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, too, though, because while we talk about them as being monopolies and having monopoly power in a lot of cases, at the same time, they're all competing with each other, is, is what they would argue. They say, hey, look, in the cloud, yeah. Amazon is in the lead, and, and Microsoft is the challenger. And then in operating systems, Microsoft's still in the lead, and Apple is the challenger. And in smartphones, Apple's in the lead uh, if you're counting devices, but Google's in the lead if you're counting operating systems. Yeah. And they would argue, look, Look how much competition there is, but we're well, looking at the wrong. Oh well, I mean, there's so there, well, there's so much wrong with that argument. And in fact, it's you're reminding me an early conversation I had with Google when I uh, started thinking about this book. I, I met with one of their strategy folks and kind of put forward my idea that hey, you guys are natural monopolists. We have a competition issue here, <laughs> and she sort of looked very surprised and said, "Well, we feel like we're competing against the big guys all the time." But that's the issue. It's Goliath v. Goliath at this point. Um, you have a handful of players, really basically three or four companies, uh, mm -hmm. that have taken over everything and are actually moving into entirely new fields. So just look in the last few months at the land grab that's happening uh, on the part of Apple, Amazon, Google in areas like healthcare, in areas like finance. Uh, we've seen Amazon go overnight into the grocery business. Mm. Um, I mean, there's... It's hard to think of a business that couldn't be disrupted by these giant firms. Now, that might beg the question of why haven't you seen other major industries saying, hey, we need a monopoly case or bringing a suit? It's a very Faustian bargain because they benefit. Every company in the world benefits from the power of targeted advertising, mm. and they're all using it. And increasingly, the model that has been pioneered by these businesses, harvesting our personal data for free. I mean, imagine if GM got all its steel for free, you know. <laughs> they would have double-digit profit margins, too. Harvesting our data for free, um, selling it, collating it across devices, across industries. You look, at, um, you look at some of the privacy and security and monopoly issues with a company like Facebook. Then think about layering a checking account onto that. Then mm. think about layering your healthcare data onto that. Then think about the world of smart speakers um, yeah. and how the surveillance is all around us now. It's not just online, 
It's in our smart home. It's in you our have smart an Amazon car. Echo. You know what? I my my husband loves it, and he <laughs> keeps it in his office. I insist he turn the darn thing off every time I go in there. <laughs> I really, you know, I I cannot imagine. I'm the same way. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I. Particularly at the political moment we live in, I do not want a surveillance device in my home. You, you mentioned Shoshana Zuboff and surveillance capitalism. Let's talk about exactly what that is. Yeah. The, the idea, uh, and, and fill in the, the detail here, I'm yeah. being too. The idea that by watching people, by collecting data on what people are doing, you can build a whole economic system that doesn't necessarily benefit them. They're not necessarily the consumer, right? but they're the good. Well, it's funny, you know, just the word consumer. So Shoshana goes back, and it's a wonderful book. I mean, everyone should read it, and I, I read it as I was doing my research. She looks in a very academic way, almost through a Marxist lens, at the history of capitalism and how this new kind of surveillance capitalism is, is in some ways the ultimate fruition of corrupting... Um, society or the citizen turning a citizen into a consumer and now turning a consumer, a person, into a raw material. So um, as we are followed around online, these um, digital uh, patterns are developed. We get none of that resource. So my shopping patterns, the fact that, you know, I have an issue with um, buying shoes and the same kind of dresses over and over again, um, you know, that's, that's my desire, that's my habit, that's my personal information, that's my behavior. It is no longer mine. It is being harvested by Google and by Amazon and used to sell me more things. Now, we haven't even gotten in. We have plenty of time to go into the political, mm. but take what we've been talking about just in terms of purchasing and um, corporate monopoly power and start to put that in the political arena. One of the things that happens online is you get more of what you click on, right? So if you're clicking right. on, you know, let's say you're on YouTube and uh, like my son, you're, you're clicking on LeBron James videos mm -hmm. all the time. You know, you're getting a lot of those. He can give you any stat about the NBA. Um, but if you're clicking on right-wing hate speech, you're also getting more of that. That's called uh, a filter bubble. Mm -hmm. And that benefits these companies because they monetize us by keeping us online longer. Um, this, though, polarizes us politically. And if you think about the power of these tech titans, I mean, corporate giants have always had political power, right? The robber barons, the railroad titans. Every CEO, uh, every founder, every billionaire, when they get to be a certain size and, and heft, they buy politicians, they buy lobbying power. Mm -hmm. But we have a new system in this world of surveillance where that power comes not just from top down, and we can get into how big tech is by dollar the largest lobbying group now in Washington, but it comes from the bottom up because our behavior can be manipulated. Our uh, these algorithms know us in some ways better than we know ourselves. And so um, George Soros, um, the, the financier and, and uh, political activist, gave a speech a couple of years ago at Davos, which you may have heard, talking about, you know, do we even have free will in this world anymore? Are, are we really in danger of losing, you know, John Stuart Mill, the kind of ability to really be free citizens in an open society, in a world in which we can be controlled at this level by algorithms. It sounds like some of the original questions about advertising, the nature of it, or yeah. you know, addiction to television. 
Right. And Tim, I mean, you probably read The uh, the Attention Merchants, another great book. I'm giving all this, like, you know, free promo for other people's <laughs> books, but it's all we're all in the same game here. Uh, Tim Wu, um, who's at Columbia, an antitrust scholar, did a book looking at some of these similarities. But I do think that this world of digital surveillance capitalism is fundamentally different. I mean, it is everywhere all the time. These services are like utilities, right? I mean, can you imagine having search or e-commerce or your Uber app pulled? Um, it's a whole new world, and we're only at the beginnings of it, really, because um, we talked a little bit about smart speakers, for example. Mm -hmm. um, those sales are going up exponentially, you know, three digits per year. Uh, that has more of a cognitive power. When you hear a suggestion given to you by voice, it's even more powerful in terms of influencing your behavior than if you just type in a search and you go where, where Google tells you to do. Right. And we've already seen, and we are seeing as more antitrust actions roll out, um, the power of these companies. You know, They can erase you as a product, as a person, uh, if they want to. It's, it's too much power. Now, Tim Cook, Apple CEO, would probably say, Rana, we are not the problem. We're part of the solution. We have this idea, this concept, uh, differential privacy that we're building into our products where we're not sucking people's actual identifying data out of their device and using that to inform our AI. We're, we're shielding that and taking general insights and... and yeah. Keeping, keeping ourselves, our own hands clean from personal data so that we're not trafficking in it. Yeah. Is that, is that true? Is that right? Or is there a hole in that argument? Um, I think it's largely true, but I think there are several holes in the argument. For starters, um, Apple certainly has had more of a commitment to privacy for, you know, to be fair, for its own competitive advantage uh, than a Google or a Facebook. It is not a data harvester in the same way that a Google or Facebook is. Those companies make 85 90% of their revenue on digital advertising. Apple makes the majority of its revenue selling hardware devices. Um, now, it wants to create that network. It wants to create that ecosystem and loop you into buying as many Apple products and services as possible. So in that way, it uses the network effect. But I would point out a couple of things. For starters, Apple's commitment to privacy has varied very much depending on what country you're talking about. So mm. Apple um, will capitulate on privacy in, in China in ways that it would not dream of doing in the U.S. Um, so it's certainly subject to political pressures, differences in the way different countries regulate data, and it's not going to stand up and you know fight Beijing on these things. I would also say that there are a couple of other problems with Apple um, that overlap with some of the problems that I see with Google and Facebook. One is in terms of who gets what part of the innovation pie, right? So mm -hmm. one of the big arguments right now, when, when regulators and the public say, hey, these companies are too big, we need to make them, um, you know, we need to bring them to heel, we need to make them smaller, maybe break them up, they'll say, look, this is a battle between regulation and innovation. We have to stay big to innovate. I would argue that these companies, and Apple is foremost amongst this, are implementers, not innovators. A lot implementers. of implementers. They are implementers of pretty much other people's technologies. And you can see this playing out. There's a great story right now in the headlines, the Sonos-Google battle. Um, right. And Sonos also has a beef to pick with Apple. Sonos <laughs> is, a, you know, is a maker, um, was, a, was a small innovator. A guy came up with this uh, way to make smart speakers. Very innovative company. Came up with a lot of technologies that were adapted by both Google and Apple. 
as those companies started getting bigger and more powerful, they started infringing on those patents. Um, Sonos has now taken Apple to court over patent infringements. It couldn't afford to take on both Google and Apple over patent infringements. But Apple has had major fights with other big companies like Qualcomm, for example. Um, Apple actually, in some ways, is responsible much more so than, than Huawei, which, get, you know, the Chinese chip maker gets a lot of flack for, you know, okay, they're becoming the new uh, go-to chip company. They're infringing on Qualcomm. Well, actually, Apple was on a three-continent battle with Qualcomm, the biggest 5G innovator in the world, uh, infringing on its patents. At some point, it just got big and said, We're not, we don't want to pay what you're asking. So these companies are implementing thousands of technologies. They want them to be inexpensive. They are, in some cases, just legally um, you know, taking open source information. They are, in other cases, infringing on patents. Sometimes they simply just buy up small companies um, in order to get rid of competition. So, again, it's the big getting bigger and using the system, I think, to ring fence the innovation environment in ways that are actually a zero-sum game. Because, just to make one more point, you can't have an economy in which four companies are taking all the wealth. You know, you've got to have a bigger innovation ecosystem. So, uh, Sonos is suing Google, uh, says they would have sued Amazon, too, but they couldn't afford to take both of them on at the same time. Yes, I'm sorry, but Amazon, wouldn't... not Apple. Although Apple's been taken on by Spotify. And other, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you can throw all the names in. Yes. It's the same story. Couldn't you argue that implementation is innovation in a lot of cases? I mean, even, um, even at the beginnings of Apple, Xerox Park had the graphical user interface, and Steve Jobs went to see it and said, how could you have this just sitting here? Somebody ought to bring this to the world. And he put out his version. It, theft is one thing. Yeah. And that's the allegation in, in Sonos's case. But could one argue that um, part of what companies and, and maybe even big companies become good at is actually bringing that innovation into life, into the economy, and, and getting it to people? You know, a lot of people would argue that. I guess I would say I don't see um, a consumer electronic product that really Let's face it, hasn't had a game-changing innovation since the smartphone, which was in 2007. Everything else has been more or less iterative. And it's been about Apple being extremely clever as a marketer, um, as a brand creator. I mean, value at this point lives in three places. It lives globally. It lives in IP and data, uh, in big brands that are able to create a kind of a veneer and a, a desirability, and in real estate. You know, I mean, that's kind of where value lives. I think in the new world that we're moving into, um, I think that uh, there's going to be an environment of deflation, of commoditization of everything. You see Apple fighting hard to keep market share. Look at Apple losing, um, losing the battle to, say, Xiaomi, which is a big Chinese uh, smartphone maker in a number of emerging markets. That a Apple's success in being able to continue packaging expensive products and selling them in giant glass boxes is actually not helping put more Americans to work. It's actually not helping to create um, the next big productive bubble, say, in green technologies or, mm. uh, you know, in things that would really bring along uh, a critical mass of workers and kind of vault our economy to the next good place. It's just about selling more expensive stuff. Now, I would argue that a company like a Qualcomm, for example. Not that that's a perfect company. They've, you know, uh, done, done plenty of um, things that, that I wouldn't laud. But 
That's a company that came up with the 5G chip. This is something that makes the smartphone smart. They, they are, in the current environment, having to duke it out just to stay alive in three continental legal battles with other American companies at the same time that you have China, for example, rolling out One Belt, One Road, working seamlessly to institute um, Huawei's chips and technologies into an entirely new ecosystem. Um, I think that that's a model that we should be looking much more carefully at, actually, mm -hmm. than, than this sort of, you know, laissez-faire, zero-sum game, keep margins as tight as you can, put jobs, uh, products, outsource the supply chains wherever you want. We see in the last few weeks and months the number of corporate scandals that that kind of zero-sum, balance sheet-driven, financialized thinking has led to, and I don't think it's leading us to a good place. Huh. So... so if we think about the different systems for dealing with challenges of big companies, the legacy in the U.S. is very different from Europe. In, in Europe, yeah. it's more about protecting competition. In the U.S., yeah. it's been more about protecting the consumer. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems like in this digital era, that kind of distinction doesn't work the same way it used to because when we talk about Facebook, or we talk about Google, very often the companies want to say, well, look at the consumer. Yeah, yeah. They're paying nothing. Yeah. Um, so, so this is good for the consumer. Yeah. Other people say, that's not the consumer. Yes. The, the, the customer for them is the advertiser. That's the consumer. And they're, they're, they're paying a lot more than nothing. Does the old model for antitrust and dealing with big companies and competition does that work still in the U.S.? Is the European model any better, or does it all just need to change? Uh, these are great questions. Um, uh, two or three points that I would make. Uh, one of the things that the big tech giants, in particular Google, likes to say is competition is just a click away, right? Eric Schmidt, Hal Varian, these guys are saying that all the time. Well, let's be serious. To go back to your question about Microsoft, you know, if, you're, if you were doing a Google search and your computer stopped working for a minute, would you go to Bing or would you get up and have a cup of coffee and come back and try Google again in five minutes? I'm going to bet that you would do the latter. Competition. I'm paranoid. Oh, are you? Do you yeah, use I'm Bing? Little, I do use Bing. Oh, Sometimes. You know, I use Google sometimes. I, I do some shopping on Walmart.com <laughs> okay. and good. their app as well as Amazon. I've got, yeah, I've got, I'm spreading my data all over the place. Okay, good. So that, yeah. Excellent. Equal opportunity <laughs> surveillance. Exactly. Um, no, that's, that's, it's, but, but so, A, um, the network effect actually creates that moat that you're talking about. But the deeper point um, is I think that the rules of free market capitalism actually do stop working. It's like these laws of gravity that, okay, you know, as long as both sides know what the transaction is um, and prices are going down, then what's the problem? Well, in this world in which you're paying not in dollars but in your data, neither of those things hold. So um, you don't know what you're giving up for what you're getting. You know you're getting a search, but you don't know how much the data is worth that you just gave Google or Amazon for that search. So it's a very asymmetric transaction, and that's a problem right away. Um, also, when you're doing barter um, and you're not paying in dollars, that's not a free market. That's, uh, you know, that's not the way Adam Smith would have envisioned a market working. Adam Smith would have said, uh, P.S., that you need equal access to data transparency and a shared moral framework in order for markets to function properly. Mm. You do not have that in, in any of these, th you know, these things when you're dealing with the digital giants. 
Um, it also calls, in a very technical way, into question this 1980s Robert Bork-esque school of thought that it's just consumer prices that matter. Um, you know, that's the school of thought, thought that allowed Walmart to get this big and destroy, um, you know, town squares. Okay, fair enough. We get our cheap stuff, so that's good for us, I guess. Um, there are a lot of neg negative externalities with that. You get less choice. Um, but in this world of free, and I put quotation marks around free, because when you download these apps and do these searches, you think it's free, but you are paying. You just don't know how much. Um, that model really doesn't work anymore. And so I think you have to look at two things. I think that you can look at the innovation ecosystem, which is the way that the Europeans do it. They look at they almost look at markets like biological systems. Like, you know, you're looking in a petri dish or a pond, and there's all these different things. There's the plants and the frogs and the fishermen. And how do we make sure that this system is working for everyone? Um, that's a very European way of doing things. It's complicated. It's time-consuming. That's why their antitrust cases take years and decades. I guess um, the outcomes are questionable. The outcomes. How's their economy doing? That Well, yes, although... Interestingly, you know, there's an NYU academic, Thomas Philippon, who just did a wonderful book uh, looking at how, by many measures, European markets work better and are freer in terms of the diversity of players in the tech space because they've been more sensitive to, you know, are small businesses doing well, are consumers doing well, do the big companies, the ones that depends on patents versus open software, is everybody, you know, getting a fair shot? Put that aside for a moment. Um, I think you have to start thinking about political power and the political economy in a way that we haven't thought about in this country for 40 or 50 years. And so one of the things in my book that I spent a lot of time thinking about, reading about, was the 19th century railroad paradigm. Mm -hmm. So you go back to um, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, and you have these networks, the networks uh, of the 19th century and 20th century economy being built by the railroad companies. At one point, the companies owned not just the railroads, but they owned the cars that sat on the railroads. They owned the coal and the wheat and the commodities that would go in them. And they could clearly preference, you know, who was traveling, how and when. I mean, they would literally, these guys would literally hand out um, free passes to their favorite politicians to ride here and there for their, for their political rallies. So mm. I think you have to look at the big tech firms very much in that way that you should not be able to both control the network and control all the commerce that happens on the network because then you inevitably come into conflict with your own um, suppliers. I mean, you look at, look at Amazon, for example. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies will uh, simply not take on antitrust issues with Amazon because they can be disappeared from their business. You know, I mean, they can just be cut off from all the consumers if Amazon decides that they don't want to algorithmic, algorithmically preference their product in a search result. Same goes for Google, and you're now seeing uh, antitrust cases come to light around this, but they're very, very difficult to prove, again, because there's this black box of algorithms that, frankly, may, and, you know, we should dig into that, but... Yeah, it, to it, clarify, to clarify, yeah. with, with Amazon, it's about Amazon having uh, both the e-commerce site and the logistics network to yes. deliver packages and its own branded and, products and and allow third parties yeah. to operate within that but at the same time yeah. have its own branded products competing against 
its customers. In Apple's case, it's about having an app store where third parties kind of have to do business if they're going to have an app on iOS, on Apple's platform, but at the same time having its own apps on that platform for podcasts, for music, competing against Spotify, for, for example, that some competitors might argue, hey, if I'm Netflix, if I'm Spotify, I have to pay a toll to be on here, and Apple, you're competing with me in the same place. Exactly. Thank you for decoding all my academic <laughs> wonkiness so, so pithily. Um, that's exactly right. And fundamentally, there are rules in place already to separate networks and commerce. What you're describing is a company that provides a network competing against third parties in ways that are not very transparent and are unfair. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the financial sector, for example, right. um, which my last book was about, was about big finance, you have rules. They're not always enforced, but you have rules that say, okay, Goldman Sachs, you can trade aluminum, but you can't own all the aluminum in the world and corner the market, which actually was an issue. It's a, fun, it's a funny little anecdote that I covered in my first book where um, at one point to get around those rules, Amazon, or excuse me, not Amazon, <laughs> Goldman Sachs, other big, <laughs> other big company, finance, uh, had, had bought up a bunch of aluminum, and they were actually moving it from one warehouse to another to get around the, the commerce network rules. So, you know, there are loopholes, but there, a precedent does exist, and that precedent existed in the railroad business as well. Eventually, you had a, a reformer, Louis Brandeis, uh, come in and say, hey, we're going to bust up these trusts, and he took on the system, and he looked at the idea that political power exists. You know, we are not living in this airy-fairy world of um, everyone's making efficient choices all the time and free markets are perfect. You know, if we if we think about economics, uh, certainly since 2008, but, but really always, they're not perfect. Markets don't always know best, and they do need rules to function properly. We are talking about Don't Be Evil, your book that came out no- November, yeah. I believe. Came out in November, really puts uh, a spotlight on the likes of Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, a few others as well, and how their size, some would say success, certainly their treatment of data and marketplaces is having an impact um, not just on customers, but on all of global society. Specifically in the U.S., mm-hmm. I wonder, can we regulate data, mm-hmm. information, without at the same time, perhaps even unintentionally, regulating speech? Because people are choosing, in a lot of these cases, to talk to Alexa. They're choosing to put information into search engines onto social networks, et cetera, et cetera, uh, pictures on Instagram that, that, that are giving away little bits of location information, preference information, commerce information. If they're giving it away for free, making that choice of what to do with their speech, how can they be stopped? These are great questions, big questions. And something that I really grappled with um, was this idea of whether or not platforms like Facebook or Google should be liable for what happens on, on them. Um, because on the one hand, yeah, you, you don't want Facebook monetizing uh, the massacre of people in New Zealand, um, but you also don't necessarily want Mark Zuckerberg to be the minister of truth. <laughs> so that's, that's the line that we're walking here. But, but let me point out a few things as folks think about this argument. Um, these companies have this get-out-of-jail-free loophole, which is called CDA 230. It's a loophole that was written in the Communications Decency Act in 1996. Mm-hmm. 
it allowed them as a nascent industry to not be liable the way that you or I as journalists would working for major media sources for what we say or do. So if I print something factually inaccurate in the FT, then we could be sued and I could lose my job. Not so for Google or Facebook. But look at what these companies do. They essentially put tons and tons of content online and then they sell advertising against it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what media does. They want to have it both ways. They want to say we're the town square, but they want to have a business model that essentially eats the lunch of traditional media and has created a kind of a post-fact world, which has led to all other kinds of problems and challenges to liberal democracy. Um, so I think we really have to consider um, rethinking CDA 230. Um, already you're seeing chinks being carved into it. There was a very high-profile case a couple of years ago um, around Backpage.com, which is a, was a website that was knowingly trafficking minors as prostitutes. And, um, you know, this, this was something that both the right and the left took on, and now the platforms do have a liability if there's sex trafficking of minors or other federal, you know, high crimes. They have a liability for those things. They do a pretty good job using algorithms um, to get child pornography, for example, off of their websites. I think we have to look closely um, at how much more they can do. And I think we also have to think about if they can't do it, should they be allowed to monetize content at scale in the way they do? Some would argue you turn the entire internet upside down or inside out mm -hmm. if you mess too much with Section 230. Yeah. The idea being even the comments on news sites were covered under that. I have no idea. I want people to have conversation, but I have no idea what they're going to say. Sure. Should I be liable for that? And I guess arguably a lot of news organizations have backed away from comments well, on their sites for, for similar reasons. But you, you could argue you can't have YouTube where people can upload user-generated content if as soon as some rogue uploads a, a bad piece of content, YouTube's going to be liable. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, at the Financial Times, we actually do look over. We have numerous human employees that look over user content and comments, and we, if they're inappropriate or, or hateful, we get them down quickly. We just That's a decision that the publication has taken. Um, I think that these are decisions that each government is going to have to make individually, and you're seeing already countries like Germany, France, the EU, China, Singapore make very different judgment calls in terms of how content is going to be policed. Um, I think it's so important that this be a democratically-led conversation and a government decision. I do not want individual private companies, one by one, making these decisions, in part because, look, they're going to do what's best for their own um, profit margins. I mean, one of the, uh, just to kind of something tangential, one of the key anecdotes and one of the reasons that I wrote this book, aside from just looking at the sheer economic power of these companies, was that, um, full disclosure, my own son became completely addicted to a free <laughs> online soccer game. Um, I discovered this because I come home one day and I open up a credit card bill. $900. $947 uh, <laughs> worth of tiny little charge. Then I'm like, who could have done this? My 10-year-old son, Alex, um, he had become addicted to a free app that uses uh, persuasive, it's called persuasive technology. They are literally kind of casino gaming techniques, BF Skinner with the dog salivating. All of this persuasive stuff takes you down a rabbit hole in which you're spending, spending, spending. Minors are being marketed to in ways that may actually um, fall afoul of some existing rules mm -hmm. around children and media. 
But I thought about this as it's like nicotine. You know, it, this is as addictive. This is, in, in the case of my son, you know, as addictive and as nefarious in some ways as vaping or smoking. Now, we needed governments to put limits on things like that. And I think that we probably are going to need a government agency of some kind, perhaps even an FDA of technology, to really look at what are the whole um, battery of effects here. I mean, mm. it, our brain science is being changed. The, you know, one of the things, I have a chapter in my book that gets into the ways in which children are being reshaped. The, the digital natives that have come of age using their phones, they read less, um, their attention spans are lower, there are higher levels of anxiety and depression. Now, it's difficult to prove causality, and the research is pretty new, but there are some um, there's some strong sociological research to show that we are being affected in really serious ways by this technology, and they need to take responsibility for it. Can we get this genie back in the bottle, though? Uh, in, in a sense, the goal of marketing, of advertising, has always been to influence people. Mm -hmm. And arguably, it's just gotten so good with data. These sites are constantly, based on little pieces of information, tweaking the layout of their app, of their site, to, to drive engagement higher, to gamify it, to give yeah. people, you know, little doses of dopamine to, to, to keep them engaged. Uh, an investor would say, hey, that's why the stock is so high. Love that. Um, do we need to have data on exactly how that works to be able to, to regulate it? I think we do, and you know, you're already seeing uh, social scientists um, come out. There was a, a wonderful book I'm, um, I actually quoted it in my, I can't remember the, the, the academic right now, but looking at the last 10 years or so of um, usage by tweens and, tween and teens of mobile technology and correlating it with things like depression and anxiety and isolation. And so you have a body of research that's developing. I think that that needs to be looked at. I mean, you have now in the DSM um, a diagnostic handbook for, for physicians. You have new uh, ailments that, that relate to digital usage, digital addictions. Um, these, are, these are real things, you know, and, and we need to treat them as such. And I think ultimately Silicon Valley has a real problem. They, they're very good at taking credit for the wonderful things that they do, and you know, they've given us all this terrific technology, um, entertaining, productivity-enhancing to a certain extent, but they're not so good at taking responsibility for the downsides, and I think that they're also not so great at admitting that they didn't do it all themselves. You know, These technologies were basically um, built on federally funded R&D. If you think about the Internet, touchscreen technology, GPS. These were things that came out of the Pentagon, actually. Um, Taxpayer-funded DARPA innovations that were commercialized by the Valley. Um, and so you have, very similar to the 2008 crisis, you have this kind of privatization of profits, but socialization of losses in so many ways. I mean, the, the human costs of automation. We haven't even gotten into that. I have a whole chapter on the Uberization of everything. Um, you and I, robots, will be doing our jobs at some point. I mean, you know, Reuters has already experimented with algorithmic reporters. Um, there's there's going to be disruption higher and higher up the food chain. You've got a handful of companies with double-digit profits not taking responsibility for any of this, and that has to change. Yeah, robots are already doing my old job. <laughs> you know, oh my right? wow. <laughs> writing earnings releases. Oh, you know, so I used, when I first started in business doing that, you know, now, yeah. hey, that's not the story that you write. Um, you, you frame the issue this way early in the book. 
uh, you write, the issue is that periods of great technological change are also characterized by great disruption, which needs to be managed for the sake of society as a whole. Otherwise, you end up with events like the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries, which, as historian Niall Ferguson uh, has outlined in his book, The Square and the Tower, might not have happened without the advent of major new technologies, like the printing press, which eventually brought with it the Age of Enlightenment, but not before it upset old orders in the same way that the Internet and social media have upended society today. Yeah. Okay, okay so... <laughs> Time machine there, time. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot in there. Um, and, and very compelling. Uh, time machine time. How do you go back to that period of time yeah. and fix that? Yeah. You know, printing press is good. Yeah. Information is good. But bad things happen. Is there a way? Are there, are there lessons that we can even extract mm -hmm. from looking back uh, at, at the past that, that help us figure out what to do now? Yeah, I think there are. Um, there's not one silver bullet. And that, that's a problem narratively. You know, as you know, when you come on programs and even when you write a book, you know, my publishers were like, okay, we want the solutions chapter and they want there to be three solutions to a problem that has taken 20 years to create or depending on where you want to put the marker, some of these problems are about capitalism in general and how, how markets are regulated, and that's been decades um, in the making. And I saw that chapter, so thank you for solving this for us. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, you know, there's more than three solutions. But, um, but yeah, I, I, think that, I think the first step is creating the proper narrative. And this is something I thought a lot about because I think that one of the many reasons that we are at such a politically polarized moment has to do with the fact that we didn't create a proper narrative about why we've had such um, disruption from globalization, from financialization, from tech-related job disruption in rich countries like the U.S. Um, you know, we thought, okay, markets should be allowed to do whatever they want. That's fine. Mm. And we didn't really talk so much about the fact that there were going to be these big pockets of pain. We need to look now at where this technology is going. Where is it taking us, and do we want to go there? And I have a chapter in my book, actually, that juxtaposes the situation in the U.S. with the situation in China. If we want to look at what a surveillance state looks at like, all we have to do is go to China. In China right now, there is no debate, obviously, in an autocratic society about privacy. Um, there's no assumption about that. The government can and does track everyone, um, harvests that data, there's a system of social credits. So if you or I are doing things that are judged to be sort of right thinking by the party, then we might find it easier to get a job or to get health care. But if we fall afoul, we may find ourselves like, you know, so many um, minority Uyghur Muslims have in a gulag. So that's where this can go. Now, that power can be wielded by countries or it can be wielded by corporations, as it is potentially in the U.S., um, I think that there is a third way. I think you're starting to see some bright spots already in Europe. Big, rich debate. I did a book tour, actually, recently in Europe, and I was just phenomenally impressed by average people who turned out to hear these kind of wonky, complex debates about how, what should the digital economy look like, what should capitalism look like in the era of data. And there's a really robust public debate. People are making different decisions in different countries, but it's happening. In this country, you look at California, which interestingly has been way ahead on legislation. Um, it's the birthplace of these companies, but it's also the birthplace of a lot of solutions. So 
You have California looking at a digital dividend tax. Going back to one of the first points we discussed, right. if data is the new oil, should these companies be able to harvest it for free? Or might they share some of that value, put it back into, say, a digital sovereign wealth fund mm -hmm. so that just like Norway or Alaska can do things for the public benefit with the monies collected from resources, let's use data as a resource and maybe help people along, help them buffer the problems of um, labor dislocations from automation. That sounds like just a tax. It's kind of just a tax. <laughs> right? It's kind but of just a specially a targeted tax for companies that, that happen to do well with data. Right. Um, it's interesting, actually, that the Trump administration is fighting France for trying to implement a tax like this right now. Um, that gets into, again, going to the proper narrative, there's, there's a debate and a real push right now in Washington and in Brussels and in other capitals to create what I think is a very problematic and nationalistic debate about don't regulate big tech, don't regulate Google or Amazon or Facebook, because we're your national champions mm. in the battle against China. Qualcomm, and, national champion. Right, and, right, yeah. exactly. Now, I don't believe that there should be national champions. I think we should have a national industrial policy and a national competitiveness strategy, but I don't think that individual companies, particularly not ones that operate in the very countries they're complaining, you know, claiming to want to go to battle with. I mean, Google has a big R&D operation in China. They're not a national champion. They are a for-profit company that's going to do what's in their best interest. They need to be forced to do what is in the public interest by the public. And I think that we need to have a real conversation about that in this country. Um, forced to do what's in the public interest by the public is hard when the public is this sort of yeah. mob, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this unruly mob. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a lot easier when you're an, an authoritarian government like China to impose rules. It and is. so I, I wonder, is it one or the other? Because right well, no. the, these days, the, the government, and it's not just the Trump administration, because the Obama administration was doing the same thing, is trying, yeah. for instance, to push Apple yeah. to create a backdoor in the iPhone so that they can, when, when they have good reason, they say, open up the device and see everything that's been done on it. But yeah. Apple argues, if, if we give you a backdoor, then China's going to want it, Russia's going to want it, Iran's going to want it, Turkey's going to want it. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of privacy-free world mm -hmm. that we want to live in? Uh, th listen, these are great questions, and they're not easy questions, but I would, uh, I would look to a couple of examples. In Taiwan, for example, you have a really rich, vibrant democracy that is actually being enabled by very decentralized technologies. So mm -hmm. in the same way that China is kind of using the big tech, big state model to create this surveillance state, you have Taiwan using blockchain to create digital identities so that people can vote, do quadratic voting on issues so that you can capture the kind of nuance that you're talking about that we have in our society. We do have, democracy is messy, right? <laughs> we know that. But I'd like to see some of these technologies being used in service to democracy rather than degrading it, which is what you've seen in the last few years. Uh, a, a solution, possible solution that gets mentioned that you also cover in your book is the idea of individuals getting a cut yeah. from the use of their data. Yeah. This one makes me a little queasy. You talked about the social dividend, which is a bit different. But some people's data is worth more than others, yep. for one. Uh, so sure. if, I'm, if I'm in the right demographic, do I get yeah. uh, a, a bigger payment? And then 
there's the question of even network effects in data in the sense that my data might not be worth that much, but my data plus your data plus another person's data yes. is worth exponentially more yes. than any individual's data. So is it even possible yes. on the individual basis to capture the value? Um, great question. I, I think that the idea of a digital sovereign wealth fund probably makes more sense mm. because of the things that you're pointing out. One of the reasons, though, that I wanted to present this idea of should individuals get a cut is there are some people that are saying, hey, look, we are moving in the era of AI, in the era of more and more automation that can do more and more of human labor, that we're moving into a post-work world. <laughs> so will, and you know. Sounds great at first. That sounds great at first, yeah. <laughs> but think about it. Like, you know, all of us have been on vacation for two weeks, and then we start to get a little cranky, you know, a little bored. Um, uh, a lot of economists are saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe our data is our labor. Maybe we need to start thinking about that um, as something that is of value. And so I wanted to point that out. I also wanted to um, show some of the numbers, and it's true. You can't, it's almost impossible unless you're inside these companies and see in the black box to get a realistic view of, of how much the value of the data uh, is, is worth because it varies by individuals, it varies by how much you're layering. Um, but just a conservative estimate shows you that this is an enormous industry. It's the fastest growing industry in the world. And so I think that's worth thinking about when you have companies making these double-digit profit margins, harvesting our data for free. Let's think about what that's worth. Let's think about the appropriate tax systems for it. This really gets to a bigger and more profound point about the way capitalism and globalization works. Mm. So laissez-faire globalization, uh, free market capitalism as practiced in the U.S. has been exported to many countries. The idea was that um, goods, capital, and people should be able to go wherever they wanted to. The, the problem is that capital can jump across borders much more freely than goods and certainly than people. Mm -hmm. Now, in this digital world, it puts all those problems of neoliberalism where companies can kind of fly above national problems, but labor's down here having to deal with the reality on the ground. The digital transaction puts that on steroids, because if capital can move across borders fast, man, data can move across borders really fast. And so we've got to just look at where this is going and set up some parameters so that you don't end up with, you know, what we've seen in, in swing states and steel towns and red states that have just been decimated by globalization, having the kind of very fractious, very ugly politics mm. that we've had. We're going to get that at a much broader level if we're not careful. Uh, Rana Faruhar, we've been talking about your book, Don't Be Evil, where you take a close look at Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, other tech companies that traffic in data that have marketplaces and networks that have gotten enormous power. I, I wonder, so much work that goes into yeah. writing something like this and so much learning, I imagine, too. How did it change you? Do you do hmm. your work? Do you do your personal <laughs> life differently, deal with these companies and these networks differently because of what you discovered while writing this? Well, the very first thing I did was to take my son's phone after he <laughs> racked up that $949 bill and do something very analog, which is force him to get out on the street with a lemonade stand and make back the money. <laughs> so How long did that take? Uh, several months, although in you know the, my part of Brooklyn, you can on a hot day, you can do pretty well. <laughs> uh, that was one. I, I don't do smart speakers. Um, 
I will often use encrypted email and, um, and different more private apps when I'm reporting. Um, it's made me think a lot about the value of my own intellectual property. You know, I, I think that we are moving to a very decentralized world in which um, really the only value we have is what's in our head, what's in our, um, the intellectual property and the data that we bring. And you have to keep control of that. Um, and so when I'm negotiating contracts, when I'm thinking about um, my next projects, I, I make sure that I keep control of my own data and my own um, intellectual property. You talk about solutions toward the end of the book and, and sort of what you hope will happen. What do you think will happen? Um, or or you know, if you're generally an optimistic person, uh, flip that on its head. What do you hope doesn't happen? What's, what's the cost if we don't do anything, you think? I think, um, and this is actually going to be the topic of my next book, I think that we could see a re-rise of fascism. Because I think, um, particularly in the U.S., um, because I think that we are in uh, a, really a post-truth world, a world in which it's so easy to create political manipulation. There are all these economic and now technical changes that are driving change so quickly and dislocating so many people, and that creates the conditions for uh, our very extreme and hateful politics. So that's the risk. Um, I think that the upside could be, if we get the framework right, could be a world in which, and this is, this is a stretch, I'm going to be very optimistic, but digital technologies do allow distributed power. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the things that's kind of interesting here. Yes, we can be spliced and diced by the big tech companies, but each of us have the power of our own data, of our own behavior online. Businesses can be started much more cheaply now in the digital era. I mean, this could actually be a boon for labor um, if the, we get the framework right. Digital Cross-border digital trade can be done much more easily now by small and mid-sized businesses than, say, back in the 80s, where if you wanted to be an international company, you needed to have size and heft. These are complicated things, but there is potential there that the post-work world could actually be a world in which labor is empowered relative to capital in ways that weren't possible in the past. Mm. That, would, that would certainly be an interesting outcome. I... Think about Let me give you a concrete example to help you. Um, Uber. This yeah. is just a piece of software. Why should a taxi workers union not have that same software. Guess what? They do now. Um, there, there are apps that are run by workers themselves, drivers, who share the profits from that. It's kind of a cooperative model. One could imagine those sorts of things being done at scale. One could imagine the labor movement itself being reinvigorated. I mean, you see now the freelancers union um, or the AFL-CIO trying to organize um, tech workers and saying, you know what? High-paid graphic designer in Silicon Valley you're actually a freelancer and you have the same problems with asymmetry of power with your employer as, say, a cleaning lady uh, in the Bronx does. And yeah. I think that that's an important point to make. And many uh, are bringing up those very points in 2020, which Indeed. is a very active year uh, politically as well as technologically. Uh, the book is Don't Be Evil, Rana Faruhar. Uh, a lot of good thought in here, and I suppose uh, one of the things that, that the rest of us can do is at least get smarter 
and read it. So thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me.